Greetings across whatever you listen to MP3s on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist and composer, silent film historian and educator, silent film event producer, film programmer. I'm a DVD label and distributor, and I'm sure there's a few other things. Oh, I host a podcast. Did I mention that? Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you've just discovered the podcast, Thanks for wafting in. If you're a loyal listener, you subscribed. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling your friends if you have. This is episode 28, recording and posting for you during the second week of July 2018. Yes, loyal listeners, are you sitting down? Even if you're doing the dishes or jogging somewhere, sit down. I've created another podcast episode within two months of the previous episode. It can happen. On today's episode, we'll talk about scoring a Laurel and Hardy comedy called Your Darn Tootin' uh, at a recent show in which we will talk about my never-ending battle with myself about the use of, and in particular, the avoidance of use of recognizable music in this one particular film. By the way, what you hear at the top of the show uh, is not our usual theme song. I thought I'd try something a little different. And you're hearing some fake Leroy Shields music that just came out of my hands last Saturday at the Silent Clowns film series as the uh, film Their Purple Moment started up on screen. We'll also be talking about a recent scoring assignment I had for DVD Blu-ray and as it turns out, also DCP, um, where I was given um, not an assignment, but a request in terms of how I was to score the film and how I took that suggestion, tried to run with it, uh, and it wound up being the first step in the creative process leading me to where I wound up in terms of the recording. And you'll get to hear a snippet of what I wound up recording first, which is not on the DVD. We'll talk a little bit about the Mostly Lost Film Identification Workshop. I'll play you a few minutes of my live score for a film that was shown during that conference. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the film The Golem and a uh, show I did of that recently. I'll have a performance clip from that and I'll talk a little bit about uh, how that show came to be. And... uh, and I'll have some news about shows that are coming up, DVD news, etc., etc. Where shall we start? I've got a whole bunch of cards here. Well, let's since it's 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 fresh in my brains. Let's talk about mostly lost. The mostly lost film identification workshop is held every year at the Library of Congress, and for three days. A whole big bunch of people sit in a theater and watch movies where we have absolutely no idea what the heck the film is, because the beginnings and endings are missing. The films have been preserved by archives all over the world. And we sit and watch the films, look things up on the Wi-Fi that's in the theater, on our phones and laptops and iPads, and yell stuff out. Uh... If you see something that looks like you know, you know what it is or who that is or that sort of thing, uh, it's 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 kind of a sport in a way for and it's not just for film scholars. If if anything, it's for people who are not necessarily film scholars. You just never know if there's something that you know or that you are skilled at looking up that may help us identify something. And the last two years, we've had record numbers of attendees. I say we because I'm slightly involved. Uh, Steve Massa and I always go down a few days ahead of time to help out with behind-the-scenes prep, 
uh, assembling name badges and swag bags of stuff and moving chairs around and getting soda and stuff like that. Um, but it's been ongoing. This is the seventh year. Uh, if you don't count the first year, which uh, is informally referred to sometimes as Nonstacon, uh, the year that Slapstacon was supposed to happen, didn't. And just uh, we all moved over to the Library of Congress and made lemonade out of uh, the cancellation of Slapstacon and had a blast. And it, it became what Mostly Lost is now. We had 190 people, 190-something people anyway, in attendance at some point uh, throughout the, the, the conference. I'm sorry, the workshop. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And for me, one of the fun things was that the number of people under 25 uh, doubled this year. Um, we had a number of teenagers who were not there the previous year. Uh, and it's just uh, it's just fun to see that there are people who don't have any gray hair and won't have any gray hair for quite some time just loving this uh this this uh this kind of crowdsourcing sport that happens in the theater at the Packard campus at Library of Congress most of the films that are shown are silent there are some sound films that do get shown and there's always live accompaniment by me Philip Carley and Andrew Simpson, and we round-robin the clips. Basically, we sit near the piano, and as soon as one film finishes, whoever's on the piano bench gets up, and the next one of us gets on and plays for the next film. And it's a, it's a practice the three of us started when the three of us were accompanying comedy shorts. It's slapstick on because playing for six comedy shorts in a row is not that easy, and we were there playing for the first Slapstickon, and I forget who came up with the idea, but we started doing it there, and it really helped. Um, so we, we worked that way, and we play for the clips, but as soon as somebody starts talking, we'll start playing quieter, and if there's a lull, we'll start playing a little louder, and that sort of thing. And sometimes me or Philip or Andrew will have something that we would, oh, we recognize something and call it out. Um, so it's it's this really fun process. Uh, there are uh, unidentified film uh, screenings throughout the day, and there are a couple of different presentations that are given by different people on a variety of topics. Uh, this year, there was a presentation on the history of lighting in silent film, a presentation about uh, the different forms of the film Dracula. There were... Oh, I'm going to... About the... The, the Norman Studios. I know I'm going to forget a couple. And there was a great presentation also done by Dino Everett and Serge Bromberg of Lobster Films. Dino is the head of the archive, the USC Hugh M. Hefner Moving Image Archive. And their presentation was about the history of Black Hawk Films. Black Hawk Films was around from the 1930s through the 80s and maybe 90s, uh, selling copies of classic and silent film on 8mm and 16mm. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably own or owned at some point films from Black Hawk. And one really cool thing that they announced at the end of their presentation is that um, all well, a majority of the catalogs have been scanned and are posted online, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you can read them online or download them. I found uh, the first catalog I ever got back in the early seventies. I think the December seventy-two issue. Um, and if you have a bunch of Blackhawk catalogs lying around, they're missing a bunch. So uh, look through your basement of stuff and look in the. Uh, the page and see if there's you've got something they don't have. Um, Lobster Films is the current owner of the Blackhawk Films uh, catalog, the not just the paper catalogs, but the um, the films, the film library. And so, if you see something uh, that has come out through Lobster, you'll invariably see, uh, especially if it's an American silent film, you'll find the Blackhawk logo on the DVD box. The evening screenings are held for the general public, and those are typically films that are 
known, but just not all that well known or hardly ever seen. Um, we had some interesting films that on the three nights, and each night Philip or Andrew and I play for each of the programs. Um, we had, uh, uh, I'd say, one of the the. The one of the highlights of the festival for me and for most people who were there is a B.B. Daniels film called Senorita, which had been screened many years ago at a cine convention, um, but most of us only know of it from its being discussed in Walter Kerr's book The Silent Clowns in a chapter on lost films. Um, at the time Mr. Kerr wrote the book, this film was lost, but it has been preserved um, by the, the, the film archive in Brussels and we got to watch this 35 millimeter print with French titles um, at at the at one of the nights of the screenings um, another film that was shown is the one I accompanied a film called Lost and One a 1916 uh, film a light drama that starred Marie Doro, who's a star from that time whose films just don't get seen. You probably have never heard of her. I barely knew of her myself. I knew the name. And it's a nice little film, five or six real light drama with some comic touches here and there. Um, and uh, it went over really, really well. Uh, I talked to a number of people who talk, you know, mentioned how much they enjoyed it, which is, you know, this is one of these things that I, I've mentioned before as far as uh, comments you get as an accompanist after a show. You know, while as a creative artist and a composer and performer, you might want people to talk to you about how great your score was, but for me... Uh, the mark of how well the score worked is when people come up to me afterwards and just talk to me about how great the film was. And for me, if the film went over really, really well, even if it's something that, like this film, was unknown and uh, it's not Sunrise and it's not Metropolis, but it went over well and they remembered it and really enjoyed it, it's kind of the same thing uh, as saying, I really liked your score. Uh, for me... When people say, I really liked your score, it means they, they were aware of what I was doing musically. And that is actually a cue for me to think of what was I doing uh, and not do it ever again. Usually people will say, oh, I like how you did this or in this scene and you played this and that scene. And uh, occasionally, and we're going to talk about this in the Laurel and Hardy segment of the podcast, um, it can be a good thing. But most of the time, if people are aware of the music... Um, then they've uh, slid out of the reality of the film, the trance of watching a silent film. And you really want people to be sucked into the film and just completely forget that you're there. Um, I usually remember to record my scores, and the scores you'll be hearing for the rest of the show are things I have deliberately recorded. I uh, forgot to record myself, but luckily... Uh, Andrew Simpson was there with his his Zoom H4 audio recorder and recorded uh, my performance as well as his uh, and sent me a file. So um, I can't really tell you much about my score because I, you know, as soon as the lights came up, I had forgotten the entire thing. Um, and there isn't anything particular I could tell you except that I was playing the film cold I was sight reading the film. I had never seen the film, knew nothing about it. Um, it's one of these things where, you know, it had been taken from the vaults and prepped and it was in the booth and there really wasn't time to watch it ahead of time. Uh, it's one of the ways we film accompanists who improvise work and can work. And, you know, uh, it's a bit of a challenge at the Library of Congress because the screen is huge. And as the uh, when you're sitting at the organ, you're dead center and real close to the screen, and um, it's really right up in your face. So I am just going to randomly, <laughs> randomly grab about four minutes of my organ score for Lost and One, 
1917 film starring Marie Doro, um, recorded with a Zoom digital recorder rather close to where the speakers are, but I'm going to I'm going to play with this. I'm probably going to add a little convolution reverb just so it doesn't sound so dry. Here it is live in performance in June 2018, a few minutes from my live score for Lost and One. Live in performance at the Packard Campus Theater of the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia on Thursday, June 14th, 2018. In case any of you want to go back in time and catch the show, yours truly doing his darndest to create a live musical score on theater organ for the 1917 film Lost and Won, starring Marie Doro. On top of playing for the film absolutely cold, without any prior knowledge of the film, aside from its being a five or six reel film that was in black and white, uh, was the fact that I was a little rattled as the film started, uh, only 
uh, and totally my own head game uh, is that I usually like to play music before the show starts, before the intro at half hour. And I played 15, 20 minutes of music, and as far as I was concerned, my pre-show uh, playing was, oh, how shall I put this, rancid? Uh, there were a few pieces I had worked out uh, to play as pre-show uh, in, uh, for the April show I did at the TCM Classic Film Festival. And uh, they went well at the TCM Festival, but uh, not so well as far as I was concerned in June. Um, you got to understand, I can sit down and play for a four-hour film cold in front of a large audience, but don't ask me to play three minutes of Gershwin in front of a bunch of people with the lights on and no movie. Uh, it's just a different mindset for me. I'm, I just choke, and it takes a lot of rehearsal to get it right. And uh, at any rate, this is what was swimming around in my head as we went into Lost and Won during the film's introduction. Uh, but I managed to uh, get my head together and make the film work. So, uh, good for you, Ben. Good for you. Uh, let's see. All right, get rid of that card. Let's talk a little bit about a Lois Weber film that has not been seen in its proper sequencing in a very long time. Kino Lorber has undertaken a rather large project of women pioneer filmmakers, a large box set, which started out as a large box set and then got larger, I believe. It's been working, uh, it's been in progress for a couple of years now, and I believe it's coming out at some point this year, 2018. I've just noticed that screenings are going to be held uh, during July at BAM in Brooklyn here in New York of several of the films from the set projected on DCP. A couple of the shows will have live accompaniment and a number of them will ha <coughs> excuse me, have the recorded tracks on the DCP, which you'll also hear when you buy the box set. I don't have a street date for it, but stay tuned. If you're not on my email list, get on it and you'll find out because I'll let you know. Uh, I was contacted by uh, Brett Wood at Kino Lorber about playing uh, recording scores for a couple of the films. Um, and uh, one thing I was able to do is that while they were really trying to have as much of the films scored as possible by women who were film accompanists, um, uh, there's just so much material to do um, uh, I wound up getting uh, a, a call about a couple of films, but the first thing I did is I, I, I gave uh, gave Brett uh, contact information for a couple of women I knew who were film accompanists who I was pretty sure may not have been on his radar, and they weren't, and I believe they got to do some scoring for the box set. So uh, I figured as, as long as I'm a guy, let me at least help a couple of other women out to get... <laughs> To get to get some work on the set, um, but still there were still a couple of hours of material that needed music in order to meet the deadline, and I was asked to do a few short films as well as a Lois Weber film called Hypocrites, nineteen. I'm going to say nineteen fourteen. I could be wrong. Uh, a a four reel feature, which um, may have. A, a weaker reputation than it deserves because, as it turns out, um, the versions that have been available up till now are from a, res a preservation that uh, survived in tinting order. So the film may have appeared confusing and to jump around in time, and that's not on Lois Weber. That's just because the film hadn't been unscrambled, which it is now. I was asked to, because the bulk of the story is about a pastor, 
uh, and his church and the, his congregation and his preaching about hypocrisy um, uh, to score the film with a church organ sound. Now, number one, I want you to know that it's great that I am being asked uh, to score a film with an organ sound. Uh, several years ago, uh, I was convincing other DVD outfits to let me use an organ. Uh, this is back then was at a time when you did not hear an organ uh, that much on DVD releases. Um, so that's a great thing that has really gone in the other direction. And I thought, okay, I do have a good church organ, pipe organ sample. It came with the Helpworks software, and I gave it a shot. And I made a number of attempts at scoring the film using that sound. And try as I might, it just didn't quite fit. Um... It, it just, it just, uh, I just couldn't make it work. It, I can't explain why, but just in my, in my gut somewhere, that sound didn't quite feel right for the story that was going on. I definitely liked the fullness of the organ, but a church pipe organ wasn't quite right. Um, certainly, theaters in 1914 that did have any kind of uh, an organ in it or one of those hybrid instruments that was an upright piano with a couple of ranks of pipes had a more church-like sound to it. But because the first third or half of the film takes place in an earlier time, not a biblical time, it's sort of Greco-Roman time when there's somebody in a, and people are in togas and a sculptor has made a sculpture. And well, you'll you'll see that when you get when you buy the box set, you'll see what the story is. Uh, so what I wound up uh, doing is uh, I wrote and I said, look, I've given it a shot. It's just not working. What I'd like to do is score the film with theater organ and just knock the trims off for the church scenes in modern day uh, and turn them go just go back and forth and that's what I wound up doing the score that I recorded the scenes that happen in modern day and when I say modern day I mean 1914 uh, are done on the theater organ but with the tremolos off and uh sticking to more of the tootsie flutsy church pipe organ sounds on on the on the Wurlitzer and going back and forth uh, and that seemed to work but I do have this recording of me trying to make it work and what the heck so here uh, for here's a few minutes a few random minutes of what I recorded for Hypocrites, the 1914 film made by Lois Weber, recorded on the St. Anne's Mosley pipe organ. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. That's the it's the free organ sound sample set that you get when you buy the Hauptwerk uh, organ software. Here it is, a few minutes from Hypocrites that you will never see with the film.
proving to everyone that I have not had a lot of experience playing in churches, yours truly trying to play church pipe organ samples to score the film Hypocrites, made in 1914 by Lois Weber. I did have a little experience playing in church when I started playing the organ. You know, the thing I discovered, as much as you may feel when looking at a theater organ or church organ that it's like a an airplane cockpit and how complicated it looks the hardest part of playing learning to play the organ that i found was finding an instrument that anyone would let you practice on i canvassed this is oh gosh this, this is well, when people still had phone books, uh, basically calling every church in a 30-block radius near my apartment, calling every church and asking, uh, could I practice on your your pipe organ? I'm learning to play the organ. And what happened was half of the people didn't return my calls, and the other half said, uh, we don't do that. So I guess there are loads and loads of organists beating down the doors to play the organs, and it's very important. Um, I don't know what the, what the rationale was. It's just, this is what I found. Uh, but there was one church about eight blocks from my apartment that said yes. And in exchange for uh, practice time, uh, I played some hymns at uh, Mass uh, a few times, uh, maybe several times. Um, so I have a little experience, and as I've mentioned in other episodes of the podcast, the idea is to play sound-alikes and not the actual music. Something else, one of the many things I learned from Lee Irwin, so... It's something that at least gives people the sound and the feel as being somewhat accurate, but not uh, to the extent that, oh, I know that, that which it's this hymn, because then a particular hymn may uh, bring up certain feelings or memories for somebody, and it will take them completely out of the picture. I gave it a shot. Uh, sometimes... Uh, that same scenario will happen for me where it's a suggestion I've given myself. Oh, you know what'll really work is if I play a film this way or on this instrument and I'll either abandon it partway through or I'll score the whole thing and then wind up throwing out it all out and starting over with a different approach. It's part of the creative process and you have to go with it and be open to whatever happens. And even the things that go wrong will lead you to the thing that is right. <clears throat> and speaking of recognizable music, let's talk a little bit about Your Darn Tootin, one of my favorite Laurel and Hardy silent comedy shorts. This was shown uh, on July 7th at the Silent Clowns film series. In uh, the summer of 2018, Bruce Lawton has programmed a series of films that were released in 1928 and which are celebrating their 90th anniversary of release. And so this program featured four comedy shorts that Stan and Ollie and the gang at the Roach Studios made in 1928. And one of them was Your Darn Tootin'. Now, there's something that I do with this film, and I'm never 100% sure it's the right way to go, but so far, it seems to be okay. And this started with, I think, the first time I ever played for the film, maybe 20 years ago when we first showed it at the Silent Clowns film series in the late 90s. But before I talk about what I played and why, I want to set something up for you, because it starts... Uh, the, my reasoning for the choice I made goes back to a couple of Laurel and Hardy comedies made in the sound era. There's a film called Them Thar Hills, made in 1934, in which Stan and Ollie, and this is the year after Prohibition has ended, and Stan and Ollie 
uh, go to the mountains uh, so that Ollie can uh, clear his head. And it's one of their one of their better sound comedy shorts. It's one of their better known sound comedy shorts. And it has a sequence in it that is the kind of Laurel and Hardy sequence that I love, which is of the two of them just sitting or standing at a table or something, just puttering around, being their, themselves. It's just this wonderful bit of character business that clearly, uh, this uh, I don't know what the script says, but it's something that must have looked on paper like Stan and Ollie or Stan and Babe make coffee. And it it goes a little something. The two of them are in this trailer making making coffee. And here's what you hear. A little later in the film, another couple has come to the mountains and has parked nearby. A couple played by Charlie Hall and Mae Bush. Uh, two people who seem to just uh, be cast as people who hate Stan and Ollie in their sound comedies. Um, Charlie Hall has gone off somewhere and May stays in with them and they uh, drink some of the coffee which uh, is made from water from a well which has alcohol poured into it and they have quite a bit of fun uh, and then this happens. Later the same year, 1934, Stan and Ali made another film called Tit for Tat, in which the two of them have set up shop and open an electrical appliances store. And across the way is another store, and Stan and Ollie go over to say hello to the two people who run that store, and they turn out to be Charlie Hall and Mae Bush. Um, and everybody seems to think that they know each other, and they can't place it how they know each other. Uh, pardon me. Are you Mr. Hall? That's the name. Uh, good morning, Mr. Hall. Uh, I'm Mr. Hardy, and this is my partner, Mr. Laurel. That's so. Uh, we're opening an electrical store next door. So what? What's he looking at? Remember that fellow that we met in the trailer? Remember his wife came in, and she asked for a drink of water? Pom, pom. I remember you, and I remember you too. Now get out of my store and stay out. So there is this melody that a lot of Laurel and Hardy fans, okay, most, if you're a Laurel and Hardy fan, you know these two films because they're two of the better sound comedies, they, comedy shorts they made, and you know this, this song. Now, when I sat down to watch Your Darn Tootin', in which Stan and Ollie play musicians in a local, uh, wind ensemble or a community band or whatever there is a sequence toward the beginning of the film where there is a concert and the concert there's some business with people following the conductor played by Otto Lederer and once everything gets settled they begin to play the piece of music and we see Otto conduct the band and what we see him do is conduct in four. He goes one, two, three, four, yump bum. And then we cut to a trumpet player who stands up and plays bum bum. And we cut back to Otto Letterer who continues on playing one, two, three, four, bum bum. 
we cut to a trombone player who stands up and plays bum bum. And I thought, oh, what else could they be playing <laughs> but that song from Them Thar Hills? Now, Them Thar Hills was made, like I said, in 1934. And I'm not sure how, in 1998, when I first started using that tune with this film, how I found, how, I found out how it went. Um, this is way before YouTube really took over. Uh, was very popular. I, I, I have no idea how I figured it out. But I, I used it as a theme there, as an inside joke. Um, and it's... I, I haven't played for the film all that much. But I can tell you that recently... Uh, did some research and I found that this is a song... This is a song called The Old Spinning Wheel... Written in 19... I think it was 1933. Recorded in 1933 or in, released in 34. So it was a song that was on people's minds. And here's a little snippet of a recording I found online. Ray Noble and the orchestra playing the old spinning wheel. So it was a song that certainly was in the air when they were making Thimthar Hills and Tit for Tat. It didn't exist in 1928. Nor did the theme song for Stan and Ollie that we all associate with them. It was uh, written a few years after the silent films were made. But I often play it during the opening titles and closing gag of a Laurel and Hardy program. Yes, it's uh, chronologically incorrect, but I can tell you uh, that there is an audible response from the audience when I play that, because that melody, and and I play it the way it's written with the dissonant cuckoo uh, notes, it's which the cuckoo bum 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 is in a different key from the melody. Uh, the cuckoo melody is in G, and the melody is played in F. And when you play it, that tune that way, people, the memories of watching Laurel and Hardy on TV in the 60s and 70s, it just wafts up, and it, it, you, this warm and fuzzy thing happens. So I don't play it a lot, but I just give people a little warm and fuzzy moment. And at the show this past Saturday... Uh, I talked to a couple of people afterwards who appreciated my including that as an inside joke. Again, this is something that isn't recognizable to 90% of the audience. So it's something, uh, using the, the old spinning wheel, it looks like a piece of music that I've created that just fits. Um, and the, the Laurel and Hardy fans who knew the tune appreciated my including it, and I said, was it distracting? The answer was no, it actually... It was, was a nice uh, added bonus to the score. Uh, what I do with it is uh, I'll bring uh, variations of it around and around during the film a couple of times, again, not to overuse it. Uh, and then when things just go crazy with the pants ripping sequence at the end, uh, I bring it around as an up-tempo uh, 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 piece. And here's a little snippet of how I use it toward the end. live in performance at the Bruno Walter Auditorium 
at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. Yours truly playing a gorgeous Steinway D nine-foot concert grand piano accompanying Laurel and Hardy in the climactic pants-ripping sequence from Your Darn Tootin, released in 1928. This summer will find me doing a good bit of recording for a number of projects. I am recording a score for the film Dinty, a video project that's been kick-started by Ed LaRusso. I'll be busy recording uh, scores for Alice Howell comedy shorts uh, for the two-disc DVD project that uh, I kick-started earlier this year. And I, if you uh, backed the project, thank you so much. I'm very excited about putting Alice Howell back on the map. Um, she was in comedy shorts as a star for about 11 years. Uh, and about a third of those films do survive, and half of that third survive at the Library of Congress. Uh, I'd say her name and work and films uh, are should be as well known as those of Mabel Normand. Uh, Alice Howell was not a director, or was not credited anyway as a director on her films, but she starred in slapstick films. She ran around, fell over, climbed ladders, got hit in the head, made a mess. She she was uh, doing the slapstick like all all the male uh, comedy stars did. And she is unknown. And that will change uh, in the next couple of years once we get her films available and out there to people. Uh, something has happened with my DVDs in that as of June of this year, the Undercrank Productions releases of DVDs are now much more widely available than just on Amazon.com and at my merch table at shows. Uh, you can now buy my DVDs on Deep Discount, Critics' Choice, Movies Unlimited, Amazon.ca in Canada. And if you live outside the U.S. or Canada, there is a website called Wow HD that... Uh, sells them uh, to, oh gosh, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Denmark, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, England, etc., etc. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've always wanted to buy my DVDs and the export tax and all that kind of stuff from regular Amazon was just too darn much, and I know that was the case for Canada... That's all over, and you can now buy my, my releases at a normal price, at a normal shipping uh, a cost. I will, I will have more news about upcoming shows and DVD projects for the fall uh, after this next bit of music uh, before we sign off. I, pre, I, I got to play for The Golem recently at the Morgan library and museum uh, i've been playing there on and off for the last oh gosh 15 20 years um and their new auditorium is absolutely gorgeous i i played for nosferatu there a couple of years ago this summer there's an exhibit all about monsters and myths and that sort of thing and so we uh programmed the golem and uh the Auditorium has a very nice Steinway B piano, and I set up my Zoom H2N uh, right near it and recorded my score. So, again, I, I'm not going to talk about how I scored a particular scene because who can remember? Uh, but here, <laughs> just just uh, to give you some more music, here's four minutes, basically, of a live performance recording of yours truly accompanying the Golem at the Morgan Library and Museum.
live in performance at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York City. Yours truly accompanying a sequence from The Golem, that German film that you all know. And if you have The Golem on DVD and would like to watch it with my recorded score, send me an email. I can make that happen. I have shows this summer uh, in July. I'm doing a number of Keaton films. I'll be doing Steamboat Bill Jr. twice, once at the Central Pennsylvania Festival of the Arts on Friday the 13th of July. Uh, I will be at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn on July 25th playing for Steamboat Bill Jr. I will be at the Cinema Arts Center. I forget the date. You can look it up. There'll be links to all of this information in the show notes, playing for three ages. And I can tell you that uh, the, if not all of them, but a number of the Buster Keaton features that are, uh, whose rights are controlled by Cohen Media, will gradually be coming back online in terms of being available in new 4k restorations so that you don't have to accompany or see Steamboat Bill Jr. and Three Ages and Sprite Marriage over and over and over. Uh, the other, uh, Some of the other films will be coming back online and I will have news about shows I'll be doing toward the end of the year uh, soon. Again, if you're not on my email list, get on it. Uh, I can't give you information about titles and dates, but I can tell you that Steve Massa and I are working on another silent comedy series that will be at MoMA. Uh, So dog ear, end of November, early December, and stay tuned. Uh, It will be more uh, films you have not seen and are not generally available and not available on home video. So that'll be at MoMA in New York City at the end of the month. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, enjoyed my work at shows, the things I do on my YouTube channel, and think, boy, I'd like to buy that guy a cup of coffee, you can do that now. There is a website called coffee.com. That's K-O-F-I.com. And if you go to ko-fi.com slash Ben Modell, you can buy me a cup of coffee online. And believe me, it takes a lot of energy to do all this. A lot of people say, uh, are marvel at what the energy level I must have to do all of this. Uh, people greet me and say, you're, gee, you're the hardest working man in show business. Um, I don't know about that, but it's uh, it does take a lot of energy, and boy, I do like coffee. So go to ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash Ben Modell, and buy me a cup of joe. Once again, I'm going to talk about the ripple effect very briefly. Uh, basically, if you see a silent film event happening, it pops up in your th- feed on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and even if you've seen it and you're not going or even if you can't go because it's outside of where you live it's a good possibility your friends might be interested it's up to us fans to spread the word there is no such thing as why wasn't this advertised more anymore we as fans have to do our part if you see anything about a silent film dvd release blu-ray release screening reposted retweeted forward that email to a bunch of your friends bring somebody who hasn't been to a silent film show before as you know the hardest thing is getting people past the word silent and you may be the person who can do that for one of your friends thanks for listening to the silent film music podcast This has been episode 28, recording and posting for you, second week of July 2018. All the music, except for the old spinning wheel, (laughs) is uh, composed and copyright 
by Ben Modell, all rights reserved. If you'd like more of what I do wafting into your inbox or your social media stream, I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Silent Film Music. I'm on Facebook. I have an email list. I send out emails once or twice a month. And I have a blog, which you can subscribe to on my website, which is silentfilmmusic.com. Thanks for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Thanks for your support of Silent Film, wherever it is you see it, on television, on disc, and live. I look forward to hearing from you, and I will see you at the silence. So long.